Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. I'm Anna Howington. And I'm Kim Yellen, and we have a special guest today. Yes, we do. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Isabel Eccles, and I am related to Anna Howington. (laughs) (laughs) My sister's here. (laughs) Yay. Go far and wide to find our guest. Sweet. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Had to track her down. It was a whole situation. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) But we knew she had a story to tell. So here Mm -hmm. she is today. But I think uh, I'm going to go first today. So I'll start off with my topic. And my topic is near-death experiences. Oh, wow. So I got today's topic from the Netflix show Surviving Death. I don't know if you guys saw that. It just came out, like, I think maybe last month. No, I haven't. Oh, it's super cool. I really recommend. Well, okay, let me take that back. I recommend watching the first (laughs) episode, and I recommend watching the last episode. But the episodes in the middle are, I'm not, like, a huge fan of them. Because, like, the first episode is about near-death experiences, which is fantastic they do such a good job and they talk to all these different people and it's really really cool and the last episode is about reincarnation and it's also super cool but then the middle episodes they they kind of get on this like kick where they're like interviewing all these mediums and i feel like you can kind of just like smell the bullshit like through the screen (laughs) you know what i mean like it's like I just, I mean, look, I'm not saying that there aren't people out there that might be able to talk to the other side, but I don't know. They had, like, this, like, medium that was, like, a physical medium, but, like, they couldn't have cameras, and, like, it had to be in a completely dark room, and it was just, like, all these things. It was just, like, I feel like they're scamming people, and there's nothing more disgusting to me than a charlatan you know yeah yeah. I just like I don't know I don't I don't like it so I feel like they're all like any like medium stuff like I mean like you said I do think that there are people that are kind of more in tune with what kind of feel things differently but I Mm -hmm. yeah I just get a bad like what was that one that like Charlotte Sylvia Brown like those type of like that I'm just like ugh, yuck yeah, and it's just like they're taking advantage of these people that are like in these grieving mm-hmm. moments in their life. And it's just like, I don't know. I just think it's kind of gross. Yeah. I guess if you need that to help like find closure, I guess I can understand that as well. So I don't want to totally knock it, but I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just so, a hard sell. It's a hard sell. Yeah. Yeah. So it, anyway, I'm, I'm not recommending the middle episodes of that series, but the first episode is so fascinating. It's all about these people who die for seconds, minutes, sometimes in some cases, hours at a time. And they come back and it sent me down this like Reddit rabbit hole after watching it too. Just like reading all of these people who had these experiences and the fact that they're all so similar and that the people who come out of them also have these like really similar reactions to them. I just think that's so cool. You -hmm. know, like I just thought, I thought that that was really neat. Reddit rabbit holes are always, yeah. <laughs> always problems. <laughs> this yeah. makes me think of the show The OA as well, even though that is totally fiction and not a documentary. But oh my god, I forgot about that show. That was a the first uh, season of that show was so good. Mm-hmm. I haven't even heard of it. OA. Yeah, the OA mm. also on Netflix. Mm. I'll have to check it out. That's that's a crazy season. Yes. 
So the near-death experience that I'm going to focus on today is one of the more well-documented ones, and it's of this woman, Pam Reynolds-Lowry. And Pam, uh, she's an American singer-songwriter from Atlanta, Georgia. And in 1991, at the age of 35, she began experiencing headaches and symptoms of dizziness. She was having trouble speaking, and she started to have trouble moving certain parts of her body. And so she went to her doctor and was, like, giving them all the symptoms. And he was like, oh, my gosh, this sounds really serious. And so they did a CAT scan. And they figured out that she had a large aneurysm close to her brainstem, which is like a really dangerous place for that to be. And she basically stood almost no chance of surviving a surgery to have it removed. And so it was looking as if she wasn't going to you know, be able to make it. But then this neurosurgeon, Dr. Robert F. Spetzler, recommended that they attempted a rarely performed procedure known as hypothermic cardiac arrest to remove the aneurysm. Yeah. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't it wasn't very chill at all. Uh, so <laughs> they did not give her a great chance of even surviving the surgery, but if she didn't have it done, then she had zero chance at all. Like the aneurysm mm. was about to rupture, so this was just kind of like their their final, you know, Hail Mary to try to save her life. Aneurysms are, like, one of my, like, big fe- fears in life. Like, I feel like you're just, like, walking about your day and then you're just dead. It could happen, yeah. 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 It's weird to think that, like, they could see it. Like, I didn't realize that's how it worked, I guess. That, like, there are some that you can see beforehand that are kind of just, like, ticking time bombs in, in your brain. And Yeah. I, I know. I, that does sound really, really terrifying. In order to perform this surgery, also known as a standstill operation, Pam's body temperature had to be lowered to 50 degrees, her breathing and her heartbeat was stopped, and the blood was drained from her head. (laughs) Yeah, so they basically, like, she's, she's dead, right? She has no brain activity, her heart's not going... They taped her eyes shut, and then they also put in these, like, noise-canceling headphones that admitted these, uh, like, these audible clicks, and they used that to test her brain activity, right? Because they needed to make sure that her EEG, this, like, thing that shows brain activity, they needed to make sure that that was completely flat in order for them to proceed with the surgery. So they did all of that. Um, All in all, the operation lasted seven hours, and it was a success. So it didn't have... It didn't have any, like, anesthesia at all? Like, the only anesthesia was that it was cold? No, no. They did give her anesthesia. Oh, she did okay. go under first, yeah. And then okay. they lowered her body temperature and, and all of that. Yeah, I don't think... They didn't do that to her while she was wide awake. <laughs> well, no, I just thought that, like, the only way they... Uh, did, okay. I misunderstood. I thought that they were just freezing her and that was it. No, no, no. <laughs> they didn't just stick her in a, in, a, in a refrigerator and then pull her out. No. That would got be horrible. <laughs> like, but you've got noise-canceling headphones, so you're fine, right? Like, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're fine. But she couldn't see anything. She couldn't hear anything. They did that. You know, she went under. They did all that. And when she came back out, she had some really shocking revelations. And she shared them with her doctor pretty immediately after she came out of the surgery, as soon as she could talk. 
Pam was able to describe in vivid detail what happened during the operation. She said that she left her body and she was kind of hovering above her body watching everything that happened. She was able to describe the tools. She was able to recount conversations that were happening around her with like eerily accurate detail. And so the doctor was obviously totally freaked out. He was like, oh my gosh, I have no idea how you could have heard this. There was no way she could have seen the tools before she went in. She had, there were all these like drapes around her head. So she wouldn't have even been able to know like what was on the other side of it, even if she was like wide awake. It was really crazy. Um, At some point during the operation, she said that she was pulled towards a light. She started to physically feel herself being pulled towards a light. And she started to discern figures in that light that included her grandmother, uh, an uncle, and then like other deceased relatives. And then there were also some people that she didn't know. And the longer she was there, she said the more she wanted to stay there and go towards that light even more. But at a certain point, like in so many NDEs that we hear about, and that's what they're called, <laughs> NDEs for short, near-death experiences. I knew that. I knew that. Oh, I thought you were saying like indie, like movies. <laughs> oh. oh indie. Sorry. No. NDEs. NDEs. Got it. Uh, she was stopped and she was told she had to go back. So... She didn't want to go back, but she said her uncle brought her back through, like, this tunnel that she had traveled through towards the light, at which point she is hovering back over the body again, and she sees them defibrillate her back to life. And she says that once they put those paddles on her, she felt a shock, and she knew immediately that she was back in her body. Hmm. So... She comes out, like I said, she tells her doctors. The doctors are, are shocked. She does an interview, and there's a really great interview from the 90s with her, and she explains everything, and her doctor is on the interview as well, and he's like, yeah, there's really no way that she would have known this stuff. He, he's, he like is, And this guy's like a brain surgeon, so he would know if there was some, some kind of way she could have figured it out. And he also would be, I feel like he'd be pretty, like, he wouldn't be really susceptible to kind of like the heebie-jeebie stuff, like... Yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. And what was her age at the time? She was 35. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I know. Isn't that so crazy? (laughs) To, like, think that you can have something like that happen at that young of an age. Yeah. Yeah. There have been people that have claimed that she maybe wasn't fully out from the anesthesia, but her surgeon says that that's likely not possible. And also, like, she had those headphones in. Like, there's no way she would have heard that stuff. She had never seen those instruments before. I don't know. I I believe the brain surgeon. Yeah. And also the fact that so many people, they're all the same. Like, and this is like throughout history, across all different religions, people have these exact same experiences or not exactly the same, but all very similar experiences where they like see their deceased loved ones, where they're pulled towards a light. Like, I don't know. So some people theorize that the reason that this happens is because of changes in the brain function right before death. And most of this rests on a theory that our brains produce a psychoactive chemical called DMT and that that's what causes this like you know, hallucination of this being pulled towards a light or whatever. Mm. But I don't know. When you take a closer look at that theory, 
kind of falls apart as well. For one, it's speculated that in times of extreme stress, the penile gland in the human brain, also considered the crown chakra or the third eye, if you're, you know, hippie crunchy, for all you (laughs) hippie crunchy folks out there. The idea that it could produce that much DMT, it just, it, it doesn't seem possible. And that's the idea. It's like they're saying that this penal gland like produces a DMT and you have these psychoactive like chemicals flooding the brain and that that's what people see. But while there is evidence that DMT is produced in the body, it's on such a minute level that there's no way that it could have that kind of an effect on the brain. And also, they don't know where it is produced, and they don't know what function it has either. So it could just be like a chemical that's in the brain, and it has some function, but it's not like flooding the brain when people have these NDEs. And how would they see the facts of what's going on? How would they not be a hallucination if they're seeing something that's in the room that they didn't see? Yeah, well, they can't explain that. Some people say that that's just because they're not fully under. Like, you hear of these people having surgeries where they'll, like, wake up in the middle of the surgery, but they can't move. But usually when that happens, they have this, like, panic, right? They Mm -hmm. go into these panics, and it's, like, these horrible experiences. But with NDEs, people, like, almost always are, like, it was a wonderful experience for them. They loved being free of their body. Like, it just wow. is, you know, it's it's just they don't have that panic that people have when they come out of um, anesthesia in the middle of a surgery, from what, I, from what I found. I feel like it's just this, like, I mean, yes, we've been studying the hum- human body for, like, hundreds of years now, but there's just so much that we don't know. Like, we don't know about how certain, I mean, like you even said, like, we don't know how these certain chemicals affect the brain, and we don't know how. Well, we do know how DMT affects the brain, because it's a, it's a drug. You can, you can, I mean, mm-hmm. if you want to, you can buy it. I don't. I don't know where you'd get it, but I'm sure if you really wanted to find it, you could. Um, But there are people out there that, like, take it, you know, just to trip out or whatever. And the experiences that they have on that drug, again, they don't match up with what people have during NDEs, like, at all. They're very different. A lot of times people who take DMT said that they, like, met aliens or, like, other weird, crazy (laughs) stuff, or they, like, understood everything in the universe for, like, 10 minutes or something. I don't know. Mm. Um, But, like, the people who have these (laughs) NDEs, they, like, actually have these experiences where they they go to the other side. They see their dead relatives. They know they have to go back. You know, it's, like, crazy. And I don't know. I just, I think it's so fascinating I just wonder if that's like, like, you know, you can have like a good trip and a bad trip and like how, like if you like set yourself up for it too, like if you know, like, okay, I'm going into the surgery, like if your mind's kind of prepped in that way, as opposed to like, oh, I'm just sitting on my couch with my friends taking these drugs and maybe I'll meet aliens. Like, I, I feel like yeah. if you're kind of prepped in a certain way that maybe. But people have these indies in accidents. Like, okay, so. Oh. In the mm. Netflix series, Surviving Death, the very first woman that they talk to who by the way is also a surgeon so these aren't like people that like don't believe in science you know what i mean like this isn't you're not talking about like a woman who like you know thinks crystals can help her you know whatever um (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah they're like real reputable people and she uh drowned Mm. and she was like underwater for like several minutes like for a long time she didn't have any oxygen And she had an experience like this. So it's not just when people are, like, 
prepared to possibly die. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. I think it's all really interesting and really cool. And the one thing that I found most interesting, I will say, is that, and they talk about this a little bit in the documentary, is that when prior to having an NDE, people who maybe are more dogmatic in their religious beliefs come out of their experience tending towards a more inclusive view of spirituality. Mm. That was, I thought, really cool. And then people who are atheists, they tend to come back from their NDEs being more spiritual. So I thought that that was kind of a neat thing that happened to people. Yeah, it just sounds like it's kind of a reset, like kind of one of those moments. I feel like even without the kind of near-death experience, like even, or the like out-of-body, you know, the things that you're describing, like those type of experiences change your life. Like if you're in a car accident or you drowned or whatever's yeah. going on, and yeah. you're going to come out of that with a, with a different kind of view of the world. And I can imagine having something like that where you're, you know, like you said, seeing seeing people that have passed or getting pulled into this light or whatever, like it would kind of change your outlook on things and... Yeah, I mean, everyone that they interviewed in the documentary and a lot of the stuff that I read online from people's firsthand experience with this, um, they all said that, like, when they came back, like, their whole idea of consumerism, their whole, like, cognition of, you know, what it means to be successful in life, like, all of that just kind of, like, flipped for them. And that they just, they weren't, they weren't in the rat race anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just really interesting to like hear them speak. But then they also had a very difficult time too, like reintegrating into their lives because they said that, you know, their loved ones and their friends and it just they they felt like they would never really be understood. Yeah. Because they had seen something that, you know, and none of them were afraid of death anymore. Wow. That was the other thing that happened. Oh, that's really interesting. From what I heard. I mean, I'm there might, you know, obviously this is these aren't like scientific studies. From from what I heard, it seems like people after they had those experiences, they were just like, Yeah, death is not the end. This is not all there is. Wow. So anyway, hmm. watch that. Watch the one on reincarnation, because that one is wild too. Um <laughs> but yeah. So that's my story for today. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Good job. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Okay. You want do you want me to go or do you want Isabel to go? Isabel, what do you want to do? I'm good. I can go. I can okay. go. Let me get this over with. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> you got this. You got this. <sighs> okay. So hello everybody and thank you for having me. I am a huge fan of your podcast. And uh I think I still would be a huge fan even if I wasn't Anna's sister. you're obligated (laughs) um and i've learned a lot i actually listened to the tuskegee and nostromus one today earlier and it was really good cool so okay well my uh story today i work in marketing so this one appealed to me a little bit i believe because of that have either of you heard of the saying torches of freedom no. no. Okay. <laughs> well, it is uh, something that was coined in the cigarette industry back in the 20s, and it was a PR stunt. So in the 20s and before that, women smoked, but they didn't smoke in public. Mm. And they smoked 
in the home and privately. A lot of times women that did smoke in public would get looked down on, or I believe even um, a few women were arrested for it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So in the 20s, when there was a lot of movement for equality and demanding equality, you know, they were fighting for the right to vote, but they also um, wanted to have the right to smoke in public. (laughs) Wow. Like like now looking back on that, that seems like such a... We want equal wage and we want representation and we'd like to be able to smoke in public please, yes. in front of everybody, <laughs> like normal people. <laughs> and there's a little bit of a question on if it was really women that were pushing for the right to smoke or if the cigarette industry just decided that this was a opportunistic time with uh, women fighting for equality to take advantage of them smoking more. I'm going to definitely go with that one. (laughs) I'm leaning towards that because in 1928, the president of the American Tobacco Company, George Washington Hill, uh, he wanted to try to market more to women. And he said, and I quote, it would be like opening a gold mine right in our front yard. Um, And he realized if he could get women to smoke outside and in public, they could double their sales and their market. So... In 1928, he hired a guy named Edward Bernays, and there's a few interesting things about Edward Bernays. Now he's considered the father of public relations, and I'm going to lean towards thinking he's a little more evil than good uh, (laughs) with the way that he went about things, but he was very good at his job. I mean, don't you have to be a little evil to be really good at public relations? Like, yes. Just a, just a smidge. <laughs> I'm thinking a little, like, Mad Men, too. Like, yeah. they're, they're kind of, like, that kind of, I know that's the industry you're in, Isabel. But I mean, like, <laughs> that, that, like, kind of marketing and, and, yeah, public relations. And you have to kind of be tapping into yeah. how can you advance your your goals well and public relations has so much to do with like reputation and like what people associate with a brand or a person so yeah totally if you're trying to like prop up these industries that like I mean I know cigarettes are seen a bit differently in in years past but like looking back on it now when you see somebody that's trying to like bring a good name to cigarettes it's like bro come on yeah (laughs) yeah Um, so Edward Bernays, like I said, he's pretty interesting. He is a double nephew of Freud, Sigmund Freud. Uh-huh. His mother is Freud's sister, and then his sister married Freud. Oh. So he already had a lot of psychological upbringing, and that helped him do some of these campaigns that he does later. He works for the government. He works for tons of huge corporations throughout his life. He was like the first guy to really hack people's mind when it oh, came to yes. advertising. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So his his mom, what were you saying? His mom and his, so it's like brothers and sisters marrying brothers and sisters. Is that <laughs> Kind what? of, yeah, oh, okay. basically. I was, I was like trying to, I was like, is there any cross there? I guess there's no like inbreeding if it's like that, but yeah. <laughs> I was like trying to figure it. Okay, got and it. And he was known for really making sure people knew that as well because oh, he wanted wow. people that to, it wasn't inbreeding or that he was related to Freud that he was related to Freud oh, and it was okay. not inbreeding <laughs> <laughs> we actually me and Isabel have a cousin who married another cousin's cousin yeah on the <laughs> other side <laughs> it was a small town <laughs> I have an aunt and uncle that married, like, a brother and sister from another family. Like, 
We're, oh. They're from a small town in, in Canada, too. And it's like, yeah. But I've never thought of it as like a double uncle. We always just like their kids. We've always called them double cousins. Oh. oh, okay. We're showing off our, our hillbilly roots here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is just small towns. It's yeah. when, like my, my family was like one big family in this little town and this other family was like the other big family. And so yeah. there just weren't as many options. This is why you need to move sometimes. Yes. Yeah. If you don't live in a place where there are enough people, get out. <laughs> yes. If everyone you talk to is someone you know's cousin, it's time to leave. Like, time to leave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they uh, they had a lot of family that was really close, but I don't not necessarily inbreeding, but still a little weird. I think that mm-hmm. um, Freud's like. Oh, I like my sister's husband, <laughs> sister. Well, he I had a lot of weird ideas about sexuality oh, yeah. and like yeah. familial, like all that stuff. He was out there. I also think he was on a ton of cocaine, if I recall correctly. <laughs> well, it sounds so. like we need to do Freud as one of your stories too. Yeah, maybe one day he was a he was out there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, goodness, so bro. yeah, he was a double nephew, is what they say he was. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, he advertised for lots of corporations, politicians, government agencies, nonprofits, and so on. A lot of people, he was a hot commodity um, for a very mm-hmm. long time in the public relations industry. He published many books on it as well. But one of his first campaigns that he did was this Torches of Freedom. So when uh, Bernays was trying to figure out a good way to market to women, he, of course, went to another man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his name was Dr. A. A. Brill. So he was talking to Brill and saying that there's just all this taboo against women smoking in public. And during this time as well, a lot of women that were portrayed in arts and media, if they were smoking, they were always the mm-hmm. downtrodden, fallen woman. And so Bernays had the task to try to get women to not feel that way anymore and so he wanted to plan this publicity scent after talking to Brill and Brill said and I quote and this is so kind of Freud sounding to me in a way so it's like (laughs) that whole psychology at that time was this way but he said some women regard cigarettes as symbols of freedom he told me smoking is a sublimation of oral eroticism (laughs) sorry Oh, (laughs) holding a cigarette in the mouth excites the oral zone. It is perfectly normal for women to want to smoke cigarettes. But today, the emancipation of women has suppressed many of their feminine desires. Feminine traits are masked. Cigarettes, which are equated with men, become torches of freedom. So he really loves that term. (laughs) Goodness, that is like (laughs) very like. Wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I'm not, I mean, I've, I have smoked cigarettes in my life, but I, so I don't think that I've ever been like, oh, this is so like orally arousing. <laughs> yes. No, no. Oh, goodness gracious. Wow. So that sounds like a marketing person. Like he, he knows. But I feel like he's marketing women smoking to men rather That's than marketing right. smoking yes. to women. Exactly. Yes. Which I think feel like was kind of the goal is that like stop seeing these women as like lower, you know, like less than because they're smoking. Like they're they're getting their oral whatever is like ready for you. And, and, like oh I feel God. like that's what they're trying to do. Oh no. 
(laughs) So after hearing this from his, you know, real reputable psychological friend that worked for his uncle or studied under his uncle, he really loved that term, torches of freedom. So he decided that he was going to hire women to participate in smoking in public. (laughs) That's like the easiest money they ever made. (laughs) Yeah. And he was paid $25,000 to to work oh my for this gosh. industry, by the way. Wow. I could not find how much these women got paid. So <laughs> don't ask me that. <laughs> but it probably wasn't, you know, very close to anything that he was getting off of this. So $25,000. Holy moly. How much was that? Like a million dollars in today's money? Be. It it's was a lot. Be. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, after this, this was kind of the, more the beginning of his career. I mean, he had done work before this, but this kind of pushed him off into working for a lot of other corporations and everything. So he probably left this world with a lot of money. And <laughs> a lot of people still study and use a lot of his strategies today, but I am not a fan of him. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah. So he's like, hmm, let's have women spoke in public (laughs) and he wanted these women to appear like they were part of the women's party and uh, were fighting for equality so he wanted to be totally behind the scenes and just like the puppet master he wanted it to look like these women came up with this went out and smoked and protested it's brilliant Mm -hmm. so he was really careful about the women he picked for the march and the plan was for them to do this at the Easter Day parade in New York City and walk down Fifth Avenue and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I mean, and it sounds pretty simple like a plan these days, but, you know, he got paid $25,000 to come up with this. <laughs> and it took three men to figure this out. <laughs> so essentially he was co-opting the women's movement to sell a product. Yes, that is exactly wow. what they were doing. And Oh, yeah. my gosh. So when he was uh, picking out the women, he said, because it should appear as news with no division of the publicity, actresses should be definitely out. On the other hand, if young women who stand for feminism, someone from the Women's Party, say, could be secured, the fact that the movement would be advertised too would not be bad. (laughs) So there you go. He's trying to like... (laughs) buy into it is that called astroturfing is that what that is probably a little bit yeah and yeah. he goes on to say well they should be good looking they should not be too modely <laughs> mm, we want real women <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> good night so also he had his secretary bertha hunt was her name pose as one of the advocates and she's the one that recruited the women so she the women that got recruited didn't even know it was from the cigarette campaign they were just getting recruited for like the women's movement so bertha recruits the women and she sent out a telegram and the beginning of the telegram said, In interests of equality of the sexes and to fight another sex taboo, I and other young women will light another torch of freedom by smoking cigarettes while strolling on Fifth Avenue Easter Sunday. Um, and she sent that to selected American debutantes. And I am not sure exactly what they mean by debutantes for that time period. Um, <laughs> 
or who they were. I could not find a list of the women who actually participated in it other than our friend Bertha. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I think debutante usually means... um, Like higher society women. Yeah. Like an unmarried woman who's ready to like... Yeah. Be ma- I thought I always thought it was a very southern term. Like it's it's strange to hear it in like kind of in the same the breath as like New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, well, I also think they're very young. Like they're women that have just been introduced, quote unquote, to society, right? So you've got these like young uh high class girls basically mm-hmm. walking around that aren't smoking. too modely. <laughs> <laughs> Not the God real forbid. hot ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. Well, he just wanted it to really look like it was like a women's really spontaneous. Yes. So of. no actresses, nothing. So you know that the the thing about this that's really like kind of messing with me, like, is do you think that there have been similar situations happening with the latest social unrest? Oh, uh, um. I don't, well, in some ways, I think there's, uh, yeah, but. <laughs> but, like, this kind of, like, gorilla kind of, like, marketing. Not, like, I mean, I know that, like, a lot of corporations are, like, you know, making sure that they make it known that they support Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. everything like that. But I just wonder, like, is there, like, some incognito stuff going on, too? I think so. After mm-hmm. reading about this guy a little bit, I didn't go... I would have been in a really deep rabbit hole if I read all the campaigns this um, Edward Bernays did. But the fact that he worked for politicians, government, and corporations and changed how you market and exploited certain movements for it, I absolutely think that's still going on. Yeah. And there is some politician... He refused to work with Richard Nixon. I did read that. but Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was the bridge too far. Richard that was the bridge too far for him. <laughs> and this is the time when I think more freedom of information and education, people were more educated in the 20s than before. And the way that information was given out was a lot faster. Hmm. Not that they had the internet or anything, but there was a lot more of like a society mind you could manipulate and advertise for at this time than there ever had been before where more people were kind of individual and on their own and not living in these big cities. Hmm. There was like a single voice. Like it seems Mm -hmm. like before the internet, there was one place that you went to get your news and that was the only place and that was the only voice you heard and you didn't kind of hear the opinions and the kind of the other side of the issue. Like Mm -hmm. before the internet, I think there was definitely this kind of like single voice that like you said, kind of that that society movement, like it's easier to kind of galvanize everybody because they're not hearing like, oh, well, maybe these women were all recruited by people Mm -hmm. and maybe Mm -hmm. they're not hearing. All they're hearing is these women want freedom and this is what they're doing and let's get on board with this. And Yeah, and the other part that's smart about it is that he got himself and the cigarettes free publicity by having them do it this way because it, made it to the New York Times. Lots of publications wrote about these women smoking in the parade. It's like he totally didn't even have to have a huge marketing budget to get that out there and make an effect. So, I mean, in a way, it's brilliant, but it's also, you know, extremely exploiting 
women. I'm not sure, like I said, if these women got paid to do it because it was so behind the scenes and they mm-hmm. didn't even know who was really holding the strings in this. So, Well, it probably also sparked, you know, five women see that somebody else is smoking. Oh, I can smoke outside now. You know, I mean, oh, absolutely. there is That's a whole, exactly like, what they wanted. That's exactly what they wanted. And honestly, I mean, women should be able to smoke outside. Yeah. At the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> if they want to. I just feel like it kind of got, like, yes, I, I agree. Women should be able to do whatever they want, obviously, and smoke outside. But it just seems like they're, like, corrupting the movement almost. Like, they're really pushing yeah. for, like, actual change in society. And this, like, yeah. sorry to smokers out there, but this kind of small issue of mm-hmm. smoking outside just seems to, like, corrupt that larger issue or that larger conversation. Like, yeah. No, yeah, we absolutely. want women to be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and not be thought of as, like, uppity women yeah. for wanting to do what they want to do. And and all you're talking about is cigarettes. Like, Yeah. Well, I mean, not to be devil's advocate, but it seems like it wasn't just that. I mean, I know women women weren't supposed to wear pants, you know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of know. the first I, step in that yeah, direction. I, I'm, yeah, I'm fine with it. I, I think out of all the evil things that advertising has done— I don't know that this is so terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is very manipulative, though. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. only reason why this stuck out to me the most is because it's the first known case or famous case of being this manipulative about marketing a product. Mm -hmm. So that's why I find it interesting. And so, you know, I do think, yes, women should have been able to smoke Women were in the workplace already from World War One, and they were already pushing for some of these things on their own. Mm-hmm. And it just makes it almost makes me laugh too. Is like women were kind of already fighting for smoking in public. There was women in New York already doing this. I mean, if you think about the twenties now, you imagine women smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just funny because I feel like almost these men were so stupid about it too. They're like, "Oh, we should just have women smoke in public," and women were like, "Yeah, we're already doing that and having to argue for ourselves." But they turn it into this thing and they think it's their idea. And I just think that that's kind of funny too. It's like, okay, women were probably already smoking and arguing on the street about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it just seems very like, what is that expression? Like losing, losing the forest for the trees. Like, yeah. like you're kind of like seeing something so small that like it, that's, that's what it seems to me. Like, it just seems like a bigger issue yeah. is at play. Yeah. Yeah. And a bigger discussion needs to happen. And you're, we're just talking about cigarettes. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they didn't care. I mean, the guy that was the president of the American tobacco company, George Washington Hill, you know, he just wanted the money. He was Mm -hmm. like, oh, Mm -hmm. well, here's my opportunity. But he didn't care about feminism or any of that. You know, it's just he hired this guy. This guy talks to his friend for a minute. They call a psychologist, but who knows? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they're like, yeah, this is great. Um, and I really think the person that is hurt the most in this is our friend Bertha Hunt because she had to go and, and be part of the demonstration. And she got asked from a reporter about how she arrived on the idea. And without a beat, she's like, oh, I was just told by a man one time that I needed to put my cigarette out. And it really embarrassed me. And so I'm here today, and it's high time we did something about this situation. And it's like, okay, oh. she needs, like, half of that 25K. I mean, come on. Right. Yes. Yeah. She had to walk down Fifth Avenue and chain smoke. Come on. 
<laughs> Fifth Avenue is a long street. Yeah. A long time. Be in the parade, be a spectacle. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. Well, I think kind of being the face of a movement, too, like you deserve some compensation for that. Like if you're going to be the mouthpiece of of what's going on, then. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so and and they really push the torches of freedom, like calling it that to to help with the liberation, because, you know, they just love that word freedom. And that was like a real good marketing term for them. And I read a few things about how they were even referencing torches of freedom or saying that up into the 90s with cigarette ads. So it stuck around for a while. So and it definitely became just legendary in public relations and, and people cite it in a lot of textbooks. But I found some percentages I thought were interesting, too. So uh, the targeting of women in the tobacco advertising led to higher rates of smoking among among women. In 1923, women only purchased 5% of cigarettes sold. And in 1929, this is when Torches of Freedom hit, that it went up to 12%. In 1935, it went up to 18.1%. And then it peaked in 1965 to 1977 at 33.3%. Wow. So it worked. And I don't know, should we give them all the credit for that? Or were women just fighting and then they were able to smoke? Because <laughs> I mean, it worked. It was obviously an effective campaign. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't think of smoking as a masculine endeavor like just sitting where I'm sitting now like I Mm -hmm. if I see a woman smoking I'm not like oh she's being such a a man like what a masculine thing to do like it it was a very effective campaign (laughs) or she must really need some oral yeah (laughs) (laughs) what was (laughs) such an oral fixation oral fixation on the cigarette really bad Um, so so yeah and they also you know started marketing to women too with the slimmer cigarettes there was Mm -hmm. lots of um and even before this uh in 1928 they started a campaign about uh smoking instead of snacking so they were hitting different touch points with women already a little bit but the president um, George Washington Hill really, really wanted to push it hard because he really, all the men were already in the market and he just got greedy and he was like, we got to get these women smoking. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they all died so, of lung cancer. Yeah. Wah, wah. All the trials and what was that, the 60s when they were talking about low, low birth weights and ba- like for smoking women, like when the tobacco industry did like finally, you know, go to yeah. go to Congress about this. They they talked a lot about women and mm-hmm. the effect that it has on people and how they shouldn't worry about it. And like they were still even then being like, no, women should smoke. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, when you really get down to it, no one should smoke. But mm-hmm. what was it? There was like some women want light babies or some women want <laughs> little babies and. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's just so funny also to to look at it, you know, in a big picture, too, of just like how much more marketing there is to women anyway Mm -hmm. on everything and how much of it is ran by men. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just sad. And so and it really shows you what men want women doing. I mean, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I just, I want to give Bertha a little credit here. I mean, she was a liar, but. <laughs> <laughs> She's the one that really did the dirty work. <laughs> she did yeah. the dirty work, man. She went out there and I bet it was cold at that Easter parade. It was March 31st. Ugh, it was cold. so cold. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. 
Definitely. So, yeah, that was my peculiar find that I had. Yeah, Love it. Good job, Isabel. <laughs> and if you don't ever air this, I'm totally fine with it. That's Stop. okay. It's good practice because I can Are do it again. Are you kidding me? This is a great story. This is awesome. Good story. So, yeah. While marketing is necessary, I'm more about marketing smaller businesses and not big corporations that have. Yeah, let's give your company a shout out too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> if you guys are in need of marketing. Yeah, if you're in need of any help with digital marketing or if you need a website or you want to change your logo or branding or anything at all that has to do with anything beautifully done online, you can check us out at Square205 at square205.com. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> she won't manipulate no mass <laughs> marches of just women. Just don't lightly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what our strategy is usually is to go after the people that want what you have. We don't right. want to market to everybody, especially with some of the industries that we work with. And then we've never done influencer marketing or any of that. I don't. That whole world to me is really creeps me out. But. <laughs> It's a huge waste of money. It is. And it's so unbelievable. (laughs) Like there was something I saw with Jennifer Lopez advertising some hair product. And I'm like, she does not use that. Like, come on, can we please change the way we're marketing these things? Because no one believes that you're using that hair product. Melissa Joan Hart has been doing a lot of marketing for Lunchables on Twitter. And I don't know why I find it so funny, but I'm like, she is not feeding her kids Lunchables. Mm. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not actually happening. But it is kind of funny. They picked a 90s actress to do it because that's all we ate in the 90s. Oh, I love a Lunchable. That's also like, they're the people that are feeding their kids now too. Like that's, yeah. that, like now we're all adults and have kids and you're going to give them Lunchables. Like, oh, let's yeah. listen to Melissa Joan Hart. There is zero real food in Lunchables. There's nothing real in that entire little box. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've, I have enjoyed a Lunchable. Yeah, that's why I like charcuterie boards now. It's but, not real. <laughs> yes, but I, I'm not going into it going, this is a, a really healthy option for... <laughs> for yeah. Me. I like the but. pizza ones. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. They They're just good. have to have the um, peanut butter cup. That's all I want. Whatever the... <laughs> Whatever the meat and the cheese is, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> You're like, but the peanut butter cup tastes better when it's... I buy it with a Lunchable packet. <laughs> right. Yes. If I just buy a peanut butter cup, then I'm being so unhealthy and whatever. But if it's in a Lunchable, <laughs> then it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Balanced meal there. Right. Yes, exactly. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm excited to hear yours now, Ken. All right. Well, we'll get, get going on mine. Um, I... With, with listening to to the one that we just put out, I swear that I don't just do medical ones, but <laughs> there's been a lot of like, obviously, there's been a lot of like medical stuff in the news recently, and it's been talked about a lot. So I thought that this was something that was really interesting. And when we heard that, when we talked to Isabel about doing the show, this is kind of a shorter story, too. So I thought it was, was a really good fit. So... I am doing the vaccine for smallpox and the eventual evisceration of smallpox. Love Mm. it. Yeah. So um, just a bit of smallpox. Sorry, a bit of smallpox. Whatever. A bit of. (laughs) (laughs) 
Just a bit of background. Thank you. What I always wanted. Yes. I mean, exactly. I'm going to tell you where you can get it at the end of this if you're interested. But um, (laughs) always. Yeah. A bit of background about smallpox. Smallpox has been around. Some of the things I was listening to were saying it's been around for since like biblical time like it's been around forever like four 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 four, (laughs) forever like a long long time ago (laughs) yes a long long time ago there's evidence of uh egyptian pharaohs dying from it there was talk about the reason that that rome fell was because there was a a smallpox breakout there was a huge breakout in athens thousands of years ago so it's it's been around for a very long time when there are breakouts, the mortality rate can be up to 35%. So it's Oh my it's, god. Yeah, so it's it's a big deal and even the people that survive can have infertility, they can have blindness, um and then they're left with like those pockmarks, those kind of like stereotypical like smallpox little bumps all over them for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. It also was a contributing factor in the um, like in the 1600s in the European conquest of the New World because it had been in Europe for thousands of years, and then when they came over to North America, the native people that were living in North America at the time had no immunity to it, so it it just wiped out all of them too. So it's uh. it's really been influential on kind of the history of the world. So. There was obviously a lot of looking into how to cure it and the very first or how to treat it even. um, One of the very first uh, evidence of uh, trying to cure it or trying to build up an immunity to it, um, going all the way back to 1022 AD, um, there was a Buddhist nun who was living in China. And what they would do is scrape off uh, smallpox scabs and crush them up and then blow them into people's nose. Magic. Yes, which was the first, <laughs> The first, they called that virulation, um, which is when you use, virulation is when you use the actual um, like virus to treat people. And so people still died from that. But according to kind of, I mean, it's hard to kind of find written information from 1020, but according to what people think, when they were virulated, when they had, the the kind of purposeful infection the um the mortality rate was only three percent compared to 30 percent so it it really was the first time or one of the first times that it was documented that you can use the existing virus to build up an immunity in a healthy person oh wow and i guess that was because it was such a small amount versus like so like their viral load was a lot less right and then it also was that the person was healthy like smallpox like so many viruses and so many diseases really attacked the young it really attacked the old it really attacked those with kind of immunocompromised issues already Mm. and so if you're immunizing which is i mean the case today too everybody if you (laughs) immunize healthy people then it doesn't spread to the people that are really uh, susceptible to it. Hmm. Yeah, so because it was a small amount and then because um, they, they talked about that some people would develop like small symptoms, but it, hmm. it was way, 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 way less deadly than hmm. the virus itself. Hmm. Um, so fast forward really quickly to the kind of middle 1700s. There was a man named Edward Jenner in England, and he started out his apprenticeship in medicine at the age of 13, which <laughs> I guess was kind of just the norm then. And he observed 
Um, something that he was, I think he was kind of one of these, it was one of these cases that he was just the first one to like write it down. But ah. he observed this thing that a lot of people realized was that the milkmaids that worked in, uh, that worked with the cows in the city that he was, that he was working in would catch this uh, disease called cowpox from the cows. And then they were almost immune to smallpox. So they would not develop uh, the sores. They would just have kind of mild symptoms. And then they had this lifelong immunity to smallpox. And so he started, yeah, so he started kind of observing that. He started, like I said, writing it down. He started documenting it. And then he took his first steps in 1796. There was a local milkmaid named Sarah Nels, and she had contracted smallpox. So she had kind of fresh small, uh, pardon me, she contracted cowpox. And so she had kind of fresh lesions from the cowpox. And so he took the, the, it says the pustules, so like the pus and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> That sounds delicious. Yes. Um, <laughs> and he took some of the pus from her from her cowpox lesions, and he took the uh, eight-year-old son of his gardener, um, who was named James Phipps, and he, like, made, it says made three or four small cuts, was kind of early vaccinations. That's how they did it, kind of before syringes, was they, like, hmm. did these little cuts and and kind of introduced the cowpox to this little boy. And <laughs> That sounds very sterile. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's, that's, which actually, when I was talking, so I was kind of talking to my sister a little bit about this, and she was saying this was even before, like, it was before Pasteur, it was before uh, Joseph Lister, like, it was before we really knew what germs were, like, this was really before hmm. even knowing what a virus was, knowing how a virus happened, like, knowing why these things spread, so, I mean, it was super unsterile, like just kind of rubbing something in a... Pus in, in a cut. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so the boy did get sick. He was he had a mild fever and for he was kind of laid out for a couple of days, but then he recovered. Oh, wow. And so then six months later, um, Jenna returned and introduced smallpox to this boy. Oh, my gosh. So, again, without even knowing... <laughs> what germs were without certainly without knowing what viruses were he just infected this kid with smallpox just kind of on a hunch that oh he figured God. just kind of going off what these women that was these, there an ethics board anywhere that he was working with <laughs> there was like l- like later on when he started to like introduce his theory there was this like like the i don't know the royal society of in england that I mean, seemed like they were kind of overseeing some of this, but I guess medicine at some point was kind of the Wild West. Like, he kind of did whatever. I see. And so, and particularly, like, I feel like it was a little bit like the eight-year-old son of his gardener, too. Like, maybe it wasn't somebody with, like, a lot of status in society. That's probably one of the problems. And the boy never developed smallpox. And so that was the first kind of observational science that when you got cowpox, you developed an immunity to smallpox. So he did kind of introduce his findings in England. Everybody was very dubious at the time. They didn't quite know. But this started the development of of what is today the modern day uh, vaccine. Uh, It was first brought to the the cowpox was first brought to the United States in, uh, well, sorry, it was first brought to North America. It was brought to Newfoundland and Canada uh, in 1798 by this man named John Clinch. 
And he had gotten the cowpox from his boyhood friend, Jenner. So they were like buddies. And he was like, dude, you got to try this. It's great. <laughs> and so then it was first brought to the United States in 1799. Um, and it started, like I said, it started um, this movement to get people immunized. There was a, a more modern uh, vaccine that started to get developed. And then from there, so from this kind of meager beginnings in the late 1700s, uh, in the 1940s, the World Health Organization, the WHO, started a big push to eradicate smallpox. And it only took three years. So from 1976 was when they first kind of started this this huge campaign throughout Asia, throughout uh, Africa, throughout the United States to get rid of smallpox. And then by 1972, it was totally eviscerated from from the world, for essentially. Um, the last known case of smallpox uh, naturally, so kind of getting it from other people, was in Somalia in October of 1977. Um, there was kind of a sad story that the disease did claim its last victim in 1978. Um, it was this woman named Janet Parker who was exposed to it accidentally and unexplained. Nobody really knows how she got it, but she started to get sick. Um, and then uh, it was, it, they said two weeks later was when they were like, oh, this seems like smallpox. Because it was something that they thought was gone. Like they didn't, mm. they didn't understand how anybody could get it. Um, and she ended up passing away. So she was the last victim of smallpox in 1978. And then in 1980, uh, the uh, World Health Organization declared it an eviscerated disease. And it's the only human disease, only human virus that has been eviscerated in our history. There's another one that they were bringing up in something that I was watching that that's like a cow, some bovine something that hmm. they've also eviscerated, which, I mean, great for the cows. But, I mean, yeah. <laughs> the only human disease... <laughs> Um, all of the stock, all of the um, current disease, so all of the, the like supply, that's a weird word for it, but the only place that you can currently find the disease is in the CDC in Atlanta and then also in um, the State Research Center of uh, Vikali and Biotechnology in Russia, so in Siberia. Interesting. Still huh. kind of carry a stock of smallpox. Um, there also still, as they said, around a million smallpox vaccines can be found throughout the world, like just in case. They said that they were keeping it in case of bioterrorism, which is kind of mm. terrifying. Yeah. I, mean, I guess it's good that they have it on hand, but it's weird to think that somebody would use smallpox as bioterrorism. But yeah, so that's that's kind of the whole story um, of how the um, through a vigorous vaccine campaign and uh, really working together, a bunch of countries working together and a bunch of organizations working together, we can totally eviscerate a disease. So hmm. I thought it was kind of a, a a real story of kind of like human victory, kind of like yeah. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully it's it's a signal of things to come in the future. Hopefully people realize the advantages of of getting vaccinated. Right. And actually, it's kind of funny. So the word vaccine comes from the uh, Latin word for vaca, which means cow. So like it come, it oh. even comes way back to like, that's how it started. Like this was the first medically documented uh, use of, of a vaccine, which the difference between inoculate and vaccinate is inoculate is using the actual disease so like the dead disease or the dead whatever or or even a small amount and then a vaccine is using something else that stimulates the immune response in you but isn't the actual virus 
Oh, wow. I always kind of wondered what the difference between those two were because I yeah. thought that they were interchangeable, but I guess there is there is a difference. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that your story was about how great humans can be and mine was like about manipulating people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And mine was about how it doesn't matter at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. See, it all goes together. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. it's, it was very much the first, like, like I said, like observational science, like being like, huh, like, and they were saying that the, like, you know, the, the 12 days of Christmas, like how they say the milkmaids, like that's from oh. this. Cause they were thought of as like, cause everyone got smallpox. So they like, had all these like permanent pockmark, like scars all over them, but the milkmaids oh. never got it. So they were like the beautiful milkmaids and oh my oh. gosh. Yeah. Wow. Like, that's where it came from. Like that everyone thought the milkmaids were so beautiful because they never got smallpox. And so. Wow. But yeah, looking at if you ever if you ever want to have like nightmares, you should look at videos of people with smallpox. It's quite oh. like jarring. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Wow. Crazy. Thanks for sharing. No problem. You guys want to do our rundown now real quick before. Sure. Great. Isabel, why don't you go? Well, um. I haven't ran in a while, but I did take a nice walk with our mother yesterday in our park. I have a little tiny baby park in my neighborhood, and she really enjoys walking in it with me. So she comes over, and it's a safer way to be around people right now is going on walks. Yes. Yeah. Being outdoors, I think, is helpful for everybody. Awesome. So not a rundown, but a walk down. (laughs) (laughs) We've done like any cardio workout, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We stretch the meaning quite a bit. (laughs) Well, mine's kind of, I mean, mine's definitely like that same kind of thing is that I've been, I don't know, it's been cold and I've been pretty like unmotivated. Like I feel like there's like no, I really like runs like organized runs like where everybody kind of hangs out at the end like I really like those and there's been none for a year obviously mm. and so I've, I don't know I felt very like unmotivated and there's nothing really to work for and so I haven't been running a whole lot and then it's cold I'm very I'm very thin-skinned I hate the cold but I just like last week started to like get back into it like started running I went back to Zumba again so mm. I've been doing all the all the kind of cardio things that I used to really like. And it's it's been really nice. It's it's um, my sister always talks about how quickly you lose it, that like if you haven't run in a while, you very quickly you're like, oh, I used to be able to run at this speed for this long. And now I'm like running a quarter mile and I'm like, oh, my God, that was so hard. But <laughs> um, hopefully I'll, I'll get back up there. I, I know I'll get there, but yeah. just kind of limping back into it right now. But it's been really nice to like get back into like. Like I said, doing Zumba, which has always made me kind of nervous. I don't know, being being with a bunch of people that are like breathing hard, but I've kind of found a place that I can do it that makes me feel better. And um, yeah, so it's been really nice. Awesome. My rundown is a story. And I, as well, I already kind of told you the story because I was so upset when it happened. But <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to tell this. it now. <laughs> So I went for a run the other day, and it was uh, kind of like an unseasonably warm day. And um, I was really happy about that. Also, it's just so dark here all the time. So mm-hmm. it was like I just – there was a little bit of sunshine, and I was like, I'm just going to get out, and I'm going to run. So I went for a run, and I had my headphones in, and I was running on this street where there are – I never see any cars on it. It's in my neighborhood. There's like never – I mean, there might be one car going down at every hour or something. It's really, really light traffic. 
And so I was running along and I accidentally stepped out in front of a car and like they saw me. It wasn't like a terrible situation. I didn't like almost get killed or anything. I was far enough away, but they had to slow down like just a little bit. Um, and so I passed or whatever. And then I, I was running on the side of the road after that and the car pulls up next to me and this woman is just irate. She is like red in the face and she starts like screaming at me and telling me like how stupid I am. And she almost killed me. She didn't, but whatever. Oh my gosh. And like telling me about how I shouldn't run with headphones and this and that. And I was like, okay, all right. You know, like she was obviously just like had like a lot of pent up anger, yes, um, which yeah. I think a lot of people do right now. So my first reaction was just to be like, uh, to just apologize to her. I was like, you know what? I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Like, I'm sorry. And But she just keeps going. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like I, you know, I'm upset too, you know, now. And I was like, I was like, look, lady, like I said, I was sorry. What have you never made a mistake before? Like the energy you're giving me right now is really inappropriate. And uh, then she calls me a snowflake, a millennial <laughs> snowflake. <laughs> and at that point, this is when I lose my cool. Yeah. And I was like, whatever. And I like, you know, I was like, you know, I was like, you're being horrible right now. Like, just leave me alone, you know? Yeah. And she's like, if I was really horrible, I would have hit you. <laughs> what? <Wow. laughs> That's psychotic. And I yeah. like, I, she like took off and I was like fuming. I was so mad. I was like in my head, like thinking of all the things that I could have said that would have like really stuck it to her or whatever, you know? And um, then I just realized like, it doesn't matter. Like, mm-hmm. she's just going to have that anger. And all she did was impart it on me. And, like, you're never going to say the right things in those moments. And it's best just to not say anything at all because there's nothing that you're going to do. You know, there was nothing I could say that was going to placate her. Right. You know, like, right. she had decided that I was her target that day. Like, I was going to be the thing that she dumped her anger out on. And sometimes you got to just, like, you know, like, let that shit go. Mm-hmm. So it ruined my run. But then the next day I was like, you know what? I'm going to have a good run. And so I went out the next day and ran again. I wasn't going to let it get me down. But wow. yeah, the people out there are crazy right now. Yeah. Like, people are crazy. So be careful because she was just like a lady, you know, but like somebody else who, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, maybe she would have hit me with her car. I have no idea, you know. So just be careful out there, guys. And and don't let people upset you. And yeah, yeah, that's my story. That's my running story. Well, I mean, like you said, like I, people, like she was going through something else. Like that was not the yeah. thing that made her day awful. Like something else happened, and then you were just like the victim of this crazy woman being crazy. Like yeah, but uh, then she got me to like be somebody that I didn't want to be. Like I yeah. tried to just apologize, and then she like kept going, and I was like, "You're being horrible." Yeah. Well, I mean, and then I'm like, fuck, like that, t- like, sh- I'm not now I'm somebody that I don't want to be, you know, I don't know. It was just an all in all eh. a, a learning situation. There's way worse things you could have said. I think telling some crazy yeah. lady that she's being horrible is not something you should lose sleep over. <laughs> I would have been like, not. what are you talking about? I wasn't over there. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then just keep running. Ghosts? <laughs> Yeah. To be like, what? I didn't see you at all. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Where was that? That corner? I haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) You should have pretended to recognize her. I've heard that's like if you're ever like getting mugged, like that's something you're supposed to do. 
be like, do I know you? Or like, do I know your mom? Oh my or God, like, that's a that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's been like, oh my gosh, Karen? I oh. mean, she yelled at me. I know, right? She was a Karen. She was yeah. a total, she was a total Karen. Yeah. Um, and she like yelled at me for like a good like three minutes. And she was like, I have four kids. I'm like, bitch, I don't give a fuck. Like yeah, how many right? kids you have? I mean, I didn't yeah. say that. But like I was thinking, I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, you should have been like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would have just played into it. <laughs> you think that, but at the time, like you don't expect yeah. it to get accosted on the street. Oh, exactly. And it's just yeah, like. Yeah. You'd be like, well, I have five kids, so there. Yeah. <laughs> and who has never, like, accidentally maybe stepped out in the street or, like, right. like almost, like, hit somebody, something with your car? Like, I just feel like nobody's perfect, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. What is it? It's that, like, we judge, we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their actions. So, like... Oh, wow. I love that saying. Yeah. That like, I, I do try, like, it's hard. I mean, it's super hard when you're like driving in traffic and you're like, oh, this freaking idiot, whatever, whatever. Where Mm -hmm. like, if you made that same mistake, you'd be like, oh, I didn't mean to. Like, that wasn't my intention. Was that a stop sign? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I forgot to put my blinker on. Like, whereas if somebody else did it, you're like, oh, what an idiot. Like, learn to drive. But like. Exactly. So it's hard (laughs) sometimes. But uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm kind of mean on the road. (laughs) I mean, like, to myself. Like, I would never not like. Like, to, like, in my car. I would never, like, stop somebody and tell them. Like, I <laughs> just, like, in my car, I'm like, what an idiot. But, like, oh, I would yeah. never tell oh, them yeah. that. Yeah. I don't want yeah. to tell people when they're... I just, I'd rather talk about you behind your back. Like, please just let me... <laughs> no, no, I'm that person. Well, and even if she did want to say, like, hey, like, I almost hit you. Like, please be more careful. Like, right. I was willing to take that criticism. Like, right. that's why when she originally came up to me, I was like, I'm really sorry. Yeah. But then, like, when she kept going, I was just like, oh, this isn't about me. <laughs> right. Yes. Like, yeah. Ugh, yeah. Crazy, crazy ladies. Did she, have a, did she have a really strong New York accent? We can blame it on New York people. She kind of did. She had, like, blonde hair, bright red lipstick. <laughs> she was driving, like, the, like, like a 2021 Lexus, mm, you know, oh like, yeah. just, like, total... <laughs> Westchester privileged like white lady <laughs> and I was just like oh you're oh and the minute she called me a snowflake I was like oh I I, I get you I right. know who you yeah. are I, yeah. I see this she know, just wanted so. to yell at somebody she saw somebody yeah. doing something that she could yell at you totally. were you were the you were yeah. the person like yeah so mm-hmm. be careful out there guys yeah. and follow us on Instagram <laughs> yes <laughs> was that a good segue <laughs> yes do all the things our Instagram is Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. Our website is PeculiarStoriesAndFarOutTales.com. Check us out on Spotify. You know, check us out on iTunes Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. iHeartRadio. On all, all the things. All the things. Yep. Yeah. And our Patreon is PSAFO, or Patreon.com slash PSAFOT. That's right. And Isabel, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, that was a great yeah. story. Thank you all for having me and being so patient with me. <laughs> yeah. That was oh. wonderful. And remember, it is far better to be peculiar than to be boring. Looking for your next great audiobook? Try Audible for free for 30 days. With thousands of titles to choose from, Audible has something for everyone. I recently listened to Intimations by Zadie Smith on Audible and loved it. The writing is beautiful and the author's narration was fantastic. Visit audibletrial.com slash peculiar to start your free trial today.